0: Uh, We're in the book of Acts right now, and uh, we're going to be reading Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, and 13 through 39. Now they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. Continue on to verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Poseidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, he said, Men of Israel, then they came, asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And we, when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And of this man's offspring, God had brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his... Com- And from many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers. This he fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as... For the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man's forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, thanks, Ilban, for reading uh, that passage for us. And, um, well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Rich, and welcome to Risen. If this is your first time visiting us, I want to extend a special welcome to you. Uh, I'm so glad that you're worshiping with us today. And, you know, my my prayer for you is not that you just kind of come and check out a church, but that you encounter God, right? Because that's what we're doing here. We're in the house of the Lord. We're in the house of God. And as Ilbum has just read, uh, we're in the book of Acts And uh, throughout the book of Acts, uh, you know, not the book of apps, got to get off my phone. But, um, you know, we've got we started in chapter one and here we are in chapter 13 now. And uh, what we've seen throughout the book of Acts is just the word of God being proclaimed. I mean, you know, uh, we may think that what Ilham read is a long sermon, but trust me, it's like one of the shortest sermons in Acts, okay? Like uh, there are long sermons from Stephen, from Peter. You're going to hear a lot more from Paul. And so we see here in the book of Acts in the early church, what they did consistently, continually, and perpetually is they just kept preaching and teaching, you know? People said, stop it. They were arresting them. They would persecute them and put them to death, but they would just keep on going. Um, and this is how people got saved. Uh, this is how uh, disciples were made. And, and uh, what we see today now, um, we see Paul and Barnabas again, right? These two buddies. Um, Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul is his Roman name. But if you know the story of Paul, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was an enemy of God but God in his mercy turns Paul into his friend and not only into his messenger, in is one of his most valuable servants uh, in the early church and throughout the history of the church. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, as we uh, learned last Sunday, uh, are doing ministry together in Antioch. Uh, in our passage today, though, we're told that the Holy Spirit calls them, uh, sets them apart to go on missions together to do ministry in several cities. And what we see today actually is Paul's first recorded sermon by Luke. Uh, But before we go into Paul's sermon, uh, which we will, uh, there's some prep work that's done by the Holy Spirit that was read in the beginning of the passage. And this shows us that any sort of deliverance and utterance of God's word and his work and his mission has to always be prepped by the Holy Spirit. So here's the outline for today, so we're gonna just take a look at two things. First, we are going to take a look at the Holy Spirit working in our passage today. And then second, we will take a look at Jesus, the answer. All right, so first, the Holy Spirit, I wanna take a look at two things we see in our passage in regard to the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, want, I want us to take a look at first how the Holy Spirit works. How does the Holy Spirit work? And then second, I want us to take a look at what the Holy Spirit accomplishes. All right, so how it works, what it accomplishes, right? Uh, in verse 2, it says that while the prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch were worshiping the Lord and fasting, right? That's what we see. And uh, in scripture, there are typically two words used for worship. The first one describes someone bowing down and honoring God. It's a very uh, specific act of worshiping God. Um, it can also, this, this sort of uh, word can also be used though to describe just generally worshiping God. But the other word uh, for worship literally means rituals. That's what it means. And that's the word that's being used here in our passage. And so one could translate verse 2 as while they were practicing worship rituals. You could translate it like that. And one of the rituals that we see here that they were doing was fasting. They were practicing fasting. That was a spiritual ritual of worship that they were practicing. And then verse 3 right after that reiterates this This uh, acts and says that they were fasting and they prayed again to confirm that this was God's calling upon Paul and Barnabas. And so the first thing we learn here about how the Holy Spirit works is that the Holy Spirit works through specific worship rituals. All right. Maybe you're thinking, wait, Rich, doesn't Paul say that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all of that for the glory of God. Yes, Paul does say that all of life is to be worshipped. So whether you're driving on the road, at work, playing board games or sports, we're to do it as an act of worship honoring Christ in our heart, in our minds, and in our words, and in our deeds. But within this universal umbrella of worship, God has ordained specific worship rituals where He reveals Himself most powerfully, where He works most powerfully in. Uh, Throughout history, Christians have referred to these rituals as means of grace or spiritual disciplines. Some of you might have heard of these terms. Uh, In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7, Paul tells Timothy what? Train yourself for godliness, right? Another translation says, discipline yourself for godliness. Well, how do you do that, right? How does the Holy Spirit train us for godliness, well, as we've seen in the book of Acts, one of the ways to train ourselves for godliness is through scripture, through uh, the preaching and teaching, through the listening and receiving of God's word. Because back in that day, not many people had written scriptures. So a lot of their scriptural intake was through group listening and group learning. In Acts 6, the disciples say, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word, to this worship ritual. Ministry just means service. So like food, they're serving the church, the word for nourishment and sanctification and growth and life transformation. Today, the Bible is very accessible, so training for godliness would include personal study. But throughout the book of Acts, we see the church practice other worship rituals. We see them practicing Sabbath gathering. We see them singing. We see them uh, partaking in the Lord's Supper. We see them praying. We see them... Serving each other. We see them uh, being generous. The Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is working and training and transforming his people through these worship rituals. And a new one that, well, it's not a new one, but this is the first time Luke records it. Uh, What we see here, another worship ritual we see the church doing is fasting. They are fasting. When you do a biblical survey of fasting, uh, you'll find that in every instance, fasting is a response to an extenuating circumstance. That's when people fast. It's it's situationally birthed. Circumstances prompt it. Uh, David fasts after hearing of Saul's death. Daniel fasts when Israel is in exile under Babylon. Jesus fasts before he begins his ministry. And so what we see and learn throughout scripture is that in fasting, God's people are, they're denying the necessity because you got to eat food and the joy because food is joyful. They're they're denying the necessity and joy of food. And what are they doing? Instead, they are running to God and saying, you're going to be my joy. And I need you more than the food that I think I need. Jesus says this, right? Um, Man does not live on bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, many times I think you and I, we go to food and many other things, um, and you don't have to just fast food, but food we go to, and other things, you know, whether it's entertainment, um, even work, we go to it for what? Because we think it's going to bring us some kind of happiness, some kind of joy. And two, we think it's, we need it. We think we need it. I need to work, Right? But when we fast, what we think will bring us joy. When we fast, what we think is an urgent need and instead run to God in fasting, the Holy Spirit starts to work, right? He, the, the Holy Spirit uses this specific spiritual ritual to unite us to God's presence, to His power, to His grace, to His glory, to His hope, you know? I know that when I fast during these situational uh, difficulties, you know, I'm lacking hope, right? And I'm, and I'm, and I'm like, I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. And what, what the scripture is saying, you know, you, maybe you think you need food. Maybe you think you need a distraction. Maybe you think you need entertainment, but what you need is Jesus. What you need is God. And so when I go to God and, and when I'm fasting other things in my life, And I get hope, I'm I'm in tune now with the the spirit and the power of his grace. I mean, you all know the story of the book of Acts, right? The church is getting persecuted. People are dying, people are getting imprisoned, people are getting threatened. Their physical circumstance is painful. It's chaotic, it's confusing. They're not sure what they should be doing. Should Should we keep going this way? and preaching the gospel, but but people are dying. So they're fasting, they're praying, they're worshiping. And through this worship ritual, the Holy Spirit speaks to them. What does the Holy Spirit say? The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Boom. The will of God. More hope now, right? Oh, I'm doing the right thing. In the midst of their suffering, the midst of their confusion, the Holy Spirit reaffirms God's will for them. The Holy Spirit is encouraging them. The Holy Spirit is reminding them, right, of his will, of his promise, of his presence, of his love. I think this is such an important word for us because, you know, uh, here in the Bay Area, we are busy, right? We believe we are the most busiest people in the world. Talked about this a little bit on Sunday. We see so much in our lives as physical problems, right? We're busy trying to fix all these physical problems in our life, whether it's work, whether it's relational conflict, familial conflict, whether it's personal discontentment, whether it's physical or mental or emotional exhaustion. But last week, we learned that Luke tells us that these things, these physical problems, they are not just physical problems. They are deeply spiritual. They're deeply spiritual. So we saw last Sunday, what did the church do? They prayed earnestly. They prayed fervently from the depths of their soul. You know, I believe as we come out of the pandemic, you know, we don't just have to physically recover our physical lives we don't just have to physically recover our physical health or our social lives. We have to also spiritually recover. It's a spiritual endeavor that's going to require us to recommit and re-engage with worship rituals, right? Spiritual practices that maybe we have not practiced in a long time in the pandemic so that we can once again be reminded and encouraged by the power and the hope of the Holy Spirit. Amen? I can't hear you. Amen. Amen. Okay, all right. I'm just double checking there. (laughs) Now, the second thing we see here in regard to the Holy Spirit in our passage is the goal, right? We see how it works through worship rituals. Well, what is it trying to accomplish, right? As we fast, as we pray, as we sing, what is it trying to, is it just trying to give us more energy and more positive reaffirmation and self-help so we can go get that promotion, right? Is that the goal? I don't know. Let's see, right? Well, I do know, but let's see together. In verse 2, the Holy Spirit communicates to the prophets and teachers what goal? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For what? For the work to which I have called them. For the work to which I have called them. And then in verse 5, we see Paul and Barnabas doing what? It literally says proclaiming the word of God. That's the work. And towards the end of this chapter, um, I'm not going to uh, go into this uh, that much today because we will talk about next Sunday. Iblum didn't read it, but I will read it just very briefly because it highlights this work to which Paul and Barnabas are called to, what they're proclaiming. In verse 47, it says this, The Lord has commended us, saying, I have made you a light, that you may bring salvation. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading. And then the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what is this work? It's being a light. It's being a light in the darkness. What is this work? It's bringing about salvation to those who are perishing. What is this work? It's about rejoicing and glorifying, not us, not ourselves, not our accomplishments, but the word of God. What is this work? It's about bringing about eternal life. It's about bringing faith now. It's about spreading this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful gospel. It's, and it's about being filled with this joy in the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is that the work that the Holy Spirit calls Paul and Barnabas, right, is, is to be a light, to bring about salvation, eternal life, faith, evangelism, and joy. You know, a couple weeks ago, uh, the ministry leaders here at Risen, we had a meeting sort of plan out the 2023 year And one of the things that we were unanimous on was the work of the church, right? The mission of the church. It's one, to become disciples of Christ. And it's two, to make disciples of Christ. Very simple. Because to be a Christian means to follow Jesus. You guys agree with me, right? To follow Jesus means to be a disciple. That's the first part. But Jesus calls us not to just follow him and be his disciple. He also calls us to make disciples. You know? C.S. Lewis has this uh, great insight in that anything we value, anything we rejoice in, we just naturally want to share it. Maybe it's a good meal, maybe it's a good book, maybe it's nature. And so God's love for us and in us, it starts a chain reaction. He loves us, so we love him, and then we love others. And so the Christian life is really not only the discipled life, but also the discipling life. That's the second part, disciple's disciple. There are different opinions how this gets executed, but the head of this train, as we see throughout scripture, is scripture. It's the Bible. You can't disciple without the Bible. At its core, disciple, uh, discipling is teaching. Teaching others to obey everything that Jesus has commanded, right? Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And what we see here in our passes today, the discipling work that the Holy Spirit calls Paul to is a sermon. <laughs> it takes up half the chapter. Why is that? Because Luke believes... He records all the sermons, all these lengthy sermons, and they're all very similar, actually. They always start sort of like with Abraham, and then he hits up Moses, and then David. But Luke believes that the Bible is the seed that's ultimately going to bear fruit in our lives. That's what Luke believes. And we know that because Jesus uses seed as a parable of the word of God. The word of God is like seed that we scatter into people's hearts to bring about spiritual revival, spiritual fruit, spiritual power in our lives. So what that means is we got to sow the word. We have to sow the word. We have to sow it in our own hearts. We have to sow it into our families, in our church, and trust that God's word is going to bear fruit. It takes faith. I know... All right, like for me, I lack faith sometimes, and you know I'm trying to control things, and I'm not praying, but I'm maybe working harder, or I'm you know telling Jen things to do more than praying for her, maybe. But the Bible says we got to sow the word, and this parable is beautiful because if you are a gardener, then you know that sowing seeds and nurturing plants and bearing fruit it takes about a year, at least. Right? And right now, it's February, and I see a flower on one of my trees. What do they call that? They call that the sign of the first fruit. Right? Now, what's going to happen in fall? There's going to be more fruit that I'll be able to harvest. And so like the farmer, we sow the word of God. We teach because we know that spring is going to come and when we see spring, that is the heads up that the fall harvest is coming. So maybe in your life, maybe in your family, you see these first fruits, right? Of, of life transformation, of humility, of repentance, of love, of, of passion for God. Well, those small fruits, those are first fruits of a greater harvest that's supposed to give you hope. Paul says this in Colossians 1, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Right? This is what uh, the Holy Spirit through fasting, through prayer, reminds Paul, calls Paul to. So Paul toils like a good gardener. He struggles, and so must we, right? Um, if you want to harvest your fruit, you've got to protect it from the pests, you know? So you've got to put nets on top of the fruit so the birds and the squirrels don't take your berries. You've got you to gotta struggle. You've got you to get up in the morning because they get those things in the morning, I know, right? <laughs> you've got to struggle. You've got to toil. All right, let's take a look at the second thing here, Paul's sermon. Let's unpack his sermon Paul hits up four key figures in history, right? Moses, David, John the Baptist, and then Jesus. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul is trying to convince his audience that the Old Testament was always pointing and talking about Jesus. That's, what, that's, what Paul, that's why he's just trying to take him. You know when you... Um, uh, sometimes I eavesdrops on uh, Jen's like, meetings, her virtual meetings, and when some people don't understand, they have to take him from the beginning, right? Okay, <laughs> this is what we decided last year, and then they got to take him all the way, and then this is why we are doing this now, right? And so in the same way, that's what Paul's doing. He's like, look guys, let's start from the beginning, right? Let's start from Moses. Let's talk about David. John the Baptist, what was he saying? Okay, Jesus. And then they're like, no, I disagree, <laughs> right? And so in verse 26... Right? What does Paul say? He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, right? And those among you who fear God to us has been sent this message of salvation, right? For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the uh, the prophets. So Paul's saying, look guys, there's this message of salvation. The (laughs) prophets have been uttering about this. You don't get it. And then in verse 32, he says again, we bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, guys. And then in verse 38, he says it again, let it be known to you that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. But Paul's listeners who knew the Old Testament very well will not accept that Jesus is the answer. They disagree with this conclusion. They will not accept that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the son of David, the offspring of Abraham. Why is that? Do you ever think about why is that? Well, you see, Israel... And looking for a king, what kind of king are they looking for? They are looking for power, right? They're looking for someone to deliver them from their political and physical enemies, namely Rome, right? They're tired of the captivity in Babylon, right? In Assyria and Persia and now Rome. What that means is that they're not looking for a savior from their sins. They're looking for a king to conquer their enemies. They're not looking for spiritual glory. They're looking for earthly glory. Someone like Moses who delivered Israel from Pharaoh. Someone like David who conquered Goliath. But as we have seen throughout the book of Acts in Peter's sermons and Stephen's sermon and in Paul's sermon today, they are unwilling to accept that what they need most is a Savior who has died for their sins. And church, I submit to you that this is something that you and I struggled with too. I want to ask you right now, and you can just answer this in your head, what is something that you desperately want right now. I bet you it's not forgiveness. It's probably something uh, to fix an earthly problem. You've probably got uh, some kind of enemy before you that you need to conquer a situational problem in your life. Maybe you have come to God over and over again, and you've prayed for his power. But God keeps coming back to you. Unfortunately, through me, <laughs> with this word, saying, let it be known to you that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. Is free. Do you feel free? freedom are you searching for? How could this be the answer? More often than not, we want immediate or temporal solutions, don't we? We don't really have a, a sustainability vision like Paul has. Paul has a sustainable answer to our problems in mind. What is that sustainable answer? Well, did you notice that Paul just can't stop talking about the resurrection? I have had up here in this, up on the slides in verse 30, 31, and 33, right? Paul says, first, God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 31, for many days Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses. Verse 33, Paul says, what God promised to the Father is this he has fulfilled by raising Jesus. In verse 34 and 37, Paul says, God raised Jesus from the dead because he says in a psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 37, Paul says, he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Paul is obsessed with the resurrection, right? It's like, all right, we get it, man. Move on to the next point. People are asking Paul to speak and they're like, Pastor Paul, what are you going to talk about today? He's like, the resurrection. Like, but you talked about that last week. He's like, I know. I'm going to talk about it again. They're like, Pastor Paul, can we talk? I need some advice. I need some prayer. He's like, the answer to your problems is the resurrection. You need to believe in the resurrection. Sustainability, right? For Paul, the resurrection is the answer for everything. Everything. Why is that? Throughout the Gospels, Jesus called himself the divine physician. And in his ministry, he would repeatedly say, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. That is to say, the truth is really all that matters at the end of the day. And as the divine physician, what he's getting at is that, you know, none of us want to go to a doctor and have her just tell us that everything's going to be fine. Right? Especially if that's not the case. We want her to tell us the truth what's wrong with our body, how to go about it, how we can respond, how our life can be saved. So Jesus, in the same way as the divine physician, as the cosmic physician says, I tell you the truth. And that is this, and it's a very difficult but critical truth, friends. It's the truth and the reality of death. Right? You and I, we're not thinking about death right now, are we? Ernest Becker calls it the denial of death, that all of life is trying to deny the inevit- inevit- inevitability of death. But the reality is, as Jesus says, as Paul is intimating, is that we are all going to die. I'm going to die you are going to die. We, we are all going to die. No one is going to escape death. If you are thinking about long-term solutions, what Paul is saying is you need to think about this. You're not thinking sustainably right now. David, dead. Right? Moses died. Jesus is the only, he's the first one that was raised. And I, and I don't say this rashly, right? I say this with tremendous Trepidation, trep- tremendous concern, and love for you because the reality is you and I have experienced funerals. And it's not just truth in a vacuum, it's truth with emotions and relationships. But out of my care and concern for you, the question is, what then? What awaits us on the other side? This is among the most important questions that we could possibly ask, and one of the most important problems we must seek the answer for. You see, what Paul is intimating at, he's he's saying, you're worried about the Romans? Paul's saying, I'm telling you right now, you've got to think about the greatest enemy, a greater enemy. Who is that greater enemy? It's death. Paul's saying, it's coming. It's coming. I've seen some of my brothers die. Death grips us. Death shakes us. Death controls us. Uh, I share this, you know, quite frequently. You know, Jen lost her father when she was young. And so death is sort of the default. Everything, every concern that she has for me, I know it's, it's she's afraid that I'm going to die, right? Anything. What did you eat today? She's not curious about what I ate. She's worried that what I ate is going to contribute to my death, <laughs> right? But that's what death does. It controls you. So Paul preaches resurrection. He's lost James to death. Many of his friends will be turned over to death. So Paul preaches resurrection. Paul is saying, this life is a precursor. This life is not the end. He's saying, you're very concerned of what you have or what you don't have here, which is very little and a very short time to what you will have in heaven, which is a very long time. The challenge is, friends, for you and me, is we may assent to the resurrection, but the reality is how we live our lives shows that we don't trust in it enough. We don't trust in it enough. We hold on to this life. But in the book of Philippians, Paul says to live as Christ and to die is what? What is it? Gain. To die is gain. Are you crazy, Paul? So if you belong to Jesus, what Paul is saying is this life is as bad as it gets. And it only gets better. So when we die, we're going to be with Jesus. We're going to say this is totally better. And this doesn't mean that we treat death tritely. Jesus didn't. He grieved when Lazarus died, even though Jesus knew he was going to resurrect him. Jesus grieved his own death. Death is sinful, it's unnatural, it's painful. So we grieve. But when we die, we have to trust that it is not the end. In Christ, the curse and sting of death has been reversed. Death is a door to resurrection. We're going to live forever. We're going to be with all our loved ones. We won't ever be afraid of death again. We're not going to sin anymore. No more guilt, no more shame, no more regret. There'll be no more pain, no more tears, no more anger. There will be no more death. It will be the death of death. All because what? Because Jesus has forgiven our sin for which the penalty is death and he has been raised from the grave and has freed us from the power of death. And that's why Paul ends with that. So that's the first thing we see here that Paul teaches in his sermon it's the resurrection we get freedom from the power of death we don't have to fear death anymore we don't have to let it control us the second thing we see here Paul says Jesus has not only freed you from the power of death but he's also freed you from the power of sin right but what does that mean freedom from the power of sin well it means that sin is not just a physical act it is a power it is a spiritual force it's a power right impatience that's sin, okay? So someone tells me, hey, stop being impatient. I can't help it. Why? Because there is the power of sin at work causing me to sin. It's a power. It's a force. When we go against God's will, this force, what does it do? It disintegrates us. The more we go against this, the more our life breaks down. Do you sense that? As we move more away from God as a sinner. It gets harder to love. It gets harder to think. It gets harder to be joyful. It gets harder to have hope. It gets harder to have peace. The power of sin is growing and growing. It's breaking you down. It's distortions and disintegration. Sin is getting out of control. That's the power of sin. And it's not just the soul. I mean, physicians will tell you, right, to be in the grip of anger, to be in the grip of sin to be in the grip of discontentment, to be in the grip of anxiety and resentment and cynicism, they'll say what? It destroys your body. Hypertension, ulcers, heart problems, disintegration, body and soul. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. In one of his books, he says, the power of sin, it begins with the sin of selfishness. But at first he says, you can be self-aware of it, You can even be ashamed and critical of it. You can repent and come out of it. But there will come a day when you can do that no longer. There will be no other part of you left to examine it, just the sin itself. The power of sin. First, you're a Jane or a John who's selfish. Then you become Jane or John who is selfish. Finally, the power of sin overcomes you. It consumes you. You are selfish. There's nothing left. That's what the power of sin does. So how do we get off this path? Paul says you can be delivered not only from the power of death but the power of sin. Paul says through freedom. There is freedom for those who struggle with the power of sin. He says freedom comes again from the forgiveness of your sins. Can you imagine that? Forgiveness does not, uh, power. Uh, sorry, freedom from the power of sin does not come first from you trying harder. Freedom from the power of sin comes first as you rest in the power of forgiveness. When you sit under the forgiveness of Christ, what happens? A power comes over you. A grace, a love, a compassion comes over you. Through faith in that, coupled with the faith in the resurrection, Paul says, now you have freedom from the power of not just death, but the power of sin. It's the only antidote. It's not an instantaneous antidote, though. It's not a silver bullet. It's a persevering antidote. It's an antidote you got to take every day, right? You want to live, take this every day. It's a daily antidote but it's the only antidote that works, friends. So you have to go to, you have to believe in it, you have to trust in it, you have to pray for it, you have to thirst for it, you have to thrust yourself upon it. And it's something that we all need accountability for. I need accountability for it. And it's okay, it's okay. We all need accountability for it. Accountability is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And we do it together because that's how it's meant to be done so I just want to encourage you today friends maybe you are struggling like me with the power and the fear of death right every time I see something going on with Luke I google it you know is this fatal (laughs) right I don't tell Jen though that'll freak her out (laughs) I just uh, google that in private maybe you're struggling with the power of sin like me well I just want you to know that Paul understood and he said the only antidote for that the sustainable solution for that is the forgiveness of God's grace for you to soften and melt your heart to give you hope and the freedom and the power of his resurrection let's pray Heavenly Father we come before you and um, you know we come to this book of Acts it's been written about 2,000 years ago and And sometimes we don't see just how relevant it is, how impactful it is, how true it is, how powerful it is. And that's our fault. Father, forgive us from moving away from you constantly, looking for immediate and temporal satisfactions, not fasting and running to you as the sustenance of life, distracting, denying death, trying to maybe overcome sin on our own terms. We forget that it all starts daily with forgiveness from our sins and freedom through the resurrection. Uh, you know everyone's heart, just as you know my heart. I pray that this would just be maybe a new beginning, uh, maybe a rebeginning where we recommit ourselves to you, where we recommit ourselves to worship rituals, where we recommit ourselves to a body, to a church, to a spiritual family, where we recommit ourselves together and acknowledge that we need help, we need you, we need each other. Would you do this? As I pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, would you call all of us to this work? In Jesus' name, amen.